Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In a recent history class, USU postdoctoral teaching fellow Chris Babbitts offered students the opportunity to write and record a short podcast on myths and misconceptions of American religious history. We'll hear some of those podcasts today. Among them are pieces titled One Nation Under God, When the Pledge of Allegiance Went to War with Communism, White Devil, Black Jesus, Religious Influences in the Black Power Movement, Religious Insanity Through the Eyes of Elizabeth Packard, and Drugs, Unemployment, and Government Overreach, Fighting for Native American Religious Freedom. Chris Babbitts and uh, later on one of his students, Chloe Miller, are joining us uh, today. Chris Babbitts, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Thanks for uh, coming in. Uh, So what class was this? This is for a class titled American Religious History, which is an upper division uh, course that is required for the religious studies major. And uh, I imagine you have various assignments. What uh, gave you the idea? Let's uh, sign a podcast. Well, I thought it would be fun for students to kind of test their skills with research and writing in a different way. I had a lot of seniors in this course, and I figured their last semester uh, at USU, they needed probably something a little bit more fun than a traditional research paper. So a uh, podcast kind of has all the writing skills, but they also have to think about their public audience when they're, when they're writing it. Uh, you, uh, you've done a podcast, Sexing History, I understand. Yeah, I was an assistant producer for a podcast on the history of sexuality um, that was, I think, very highly produced and really exposed a lot of different elements of the history of sexuality in the United States that a lot of people had either forgotten about or had never heard about. Mm -hmm. Uh, What were some of the, uh, I don't know, some of the things you learned as as a producer on that podcast? Well, one of the things was uh, obviously grabbing the uh, listeners' attention uh, with interesting sound clips and whatnot, and not just only writing uh, in accessible prose, but making it so the the listener really gets sucked in. And that's one of the things that I wanted my students to really think about. Um, by the time that they're seniors here at USU, they're really good at writing argumentative theses, but I wanted them to think about how you would actually get somebody to care about American religious history, the you know well-educated average listener something to something like UPR. Yeah. Uh, So this particular assignment, uh, Myths and Misconceptions of American Religious History, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I was thinking, uh, as a scholar of American Religious History, kind of what are the things that most Americans think they know about their country and its religious history and kind of get a little bit wrong. So things like uh, a lot of Americans think that the the phrase separation of church and state is somewhere either in the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or one of the Bill of Rights uh, amendments. So uh, thinking about how we can educate people a little bit more about things that we think we know but are not quite there. Another is, you know, a lot of people uh, in the modern era think about the First Amendment as a highly um, kind of um, litigious issue. And it wasn't really until the 1940s that uh, the two clauses about religion and the First Amendment really start getting litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court. There's cases before that, but since really the 1940s has been what we think of as kind of the modern era of argument over what the First Amendment means, especially with its religious clauses. So uh, assigning this, you essentially become the, uh, I guess, the editor, arbiter of accuracy, right, You'd <laughs> for, for these podcasts, I imagine. Yeah. So uh, there were a couple rounds of editing, obviously a proposal too. And uh, I helped the students to try to make their prose a little less academic and try to make it um, 
a way that you could actually listen and learn um, versus kind of the normal reading and processing the information. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's jump into the first of these. We'll we'll be able to hear hopefully four today. There's two others which we'll we can put on our website. People can enjoy them there. Uh, so the the one I chose to begin with um, is Darcy Ritchie's, and uh, this is uh, titled "One Nation Under God: When the Pledge of Allegiance Went to War with Communism." Anything you'd like to say to set this up? Oh, just that Darcy is a wonderful student, and this mm-hmm. is a really strong piece of work. All right, let's uh, let's hear uh, Darcy's uh, piece, uh, Darcy Ritchie, um, One Nation Under God, when the Pledge of Allegiance went to war with communism. That's a recording of American children reciting the Pledge of Allegiance in 1950. You might have noticed that their pledge sounds slightly different from the one you recited every morning in school. If you were raised reciting the new version of the Pledge of Allegiance, you might not know that the phrase under God wasn't included in the original text. You also might not know the United States national motto, In God We Trust, wasn't adopted until 180 years after the country was founded. Although these phrases have been part of American civil religion since the 1950s, many Americans think that they have their roots in the nation's founding but that's not true. Kevin Cruz, a historian at Princeton University, puts it like this. The ceremonies and symbols that breathe life into the belief that we are one nation under God were not, as many Americans believe, created alongside the nation itself. Their parentage stems not from the founding fathers, but from an era much closer to our own, the era of our own fathers and mothers, our grandfathers and grandmothers. Francis Bellamy wrote the original Pledge of Allegiance in 1892, and an act of Congress made it the official pledge to the flag in 1945. Immediately after World War II, a second grader would have pledged allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The phrase, under God, wasn't included in the pledge just yet. On April 23, 1953, however, Representative Louis C. Rabot, a Democrat and Roman Catholic from Michigan, introduced a resolution proposing the phrase, under God, be added to the Pledge of Allegiance. Though the resolution had overwhelming support, nothing happened until February of 1954. So what changed? George M. Dougherty, the pastor of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, lent his support. Just a few blocks from the White House, the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church is a popular location for political leaders to worship, including presidents like Abraham Lincoln and Dwight D. Eisenhower. As the pastor there, Dougherty was able to quickly rise to prominence as a religious leader and advocate for the merging of religion and politics. In his service with President Eisenhower and the First Lady in attendance, Dougherty proclaimed that including God in the Pledge of Allegiance would set the United States Pledge apart from the Pledge of the Soviet Union. Three days later, Senator Homer Ferguson, a Republican Presbyterian from Wisconsin, introduced a joint resolution in support of the change to the U.S.'s Pledge of Allegiance. In June, the resolution passed in Congress and President Eisenhower signed it into law, with great support from the public and no opposition from other political leaders. When reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, students would now recite daily that the republic for which the flag stands is not just one nation indivisible, but that it also existed under God. The inclusion of religious symbols and language in a country's rituals, such as incorporating the words under God into the Pledge of Allegiance, is an example of civil religion. Sociologist Robert Bella introduced the term civil religion in an influential essay published in 1967. Historian Lee Knipe describes civil religion as borrowing symbols, rituals, and language, quote, from the sacred to give meaning to the secular, unquote. According to Knipe, civil religion tends to surface when there's a real, 
or imagined threat to American security, as in the Cold War. The Cold War is often misinterpreted as simply a political and economic struggle between capitalism and communism, when in actuality the Cold War was also a conflict over culture. In the 1950s, anti-communism became connected with Christianity. Church attendance soared, rising to the highest rates of attendance in the nation's history. Political and religious leaders increasingly fused religion with politics in the early Cold War. When he first introduced the bill to change the Pledge of Allegiance in 1953, Representative Rabot said it was his hope that adding under God to the pledge would give children, quote, a deeper understanding of the real meaning of patriotism, unquote. This explicit connection of religion with patriotism is evidence of the way that anti-communism and Christianity became linked during the early Cold War. In 1956, the inclusion of the new national motto, In God We Trust, on all paper currency, connected Christianity with American capitalism as well. The stakes of the Cold War, American democracy, religiosity, and support for capitalism against the purportedly godless and communist nation of the Soviet Union were clearly defined in a bipolar world. American evangelist Billy Graham's sermons also showed the conflict between the atheist Soviets and the godly Americans. Graham became the nation's most prominent evangelist after staging a successful religious revival in Los Angeles in 1949. He used charged language about the threat that the Soviet Union posed to the world. Graham specifically condemned communism as a counterfeit version of Christianity, masterminded by Satan himself. Here's an excerpt of one of Graham's sermons from 1951. This sermon was broadcast to the masses on American radio stations. Graham not only declared communism the enemy of Christianity, but also an imitation of the religion itself. To Graham, communism was not just a political ideology or an economic system. He saw it as a gross replica of religious doctrine and fundamentally anti-Christian. In this way, Graham used his platform as a religious leader to connect anti-communism with Christianity. Graham's rise to prominence happened as the United States voted in its first Republican president in 20 years. Dwight D. Eisenhower, one of the most prominent military heroes of World War II, set a religious tone for his presidency from the start. He not only opened his inaugural address in 1953 with a prayer, but in the speech he also asserted that the communist enemies of the United States know no God. Here then is joined no argument between slightly different philosophies. This conflict strikes directly at the faith of our fathers and at the lives of our sons. No principle or treasure that we hold from the spiritual knowledge of our free schools and churches to the creative magic of free labor and capital. Nothing lies safely beyond the reach of this struggle. Eisenhower pitted the religious United States with its spiritual knowledge and free churches against the godless Soviet Union. He used religious language in his inaugural address to link anti-communism with Christianity, and he set a religious tone for the rest of his administration. It was during Eisenhower's administration that phrases like one nation under God and in God we trust were born. Though the phrases under God and in God we trust are relatively recent additions to the United States civil religion, they still have great significance. These two phrases are evidence of the cultural and religious conflict during the Cold War. Even though under God and in God we trust aren't phrases that originated with the nation's founders, this doesn't diminish their importance to Americans and to the country's civil religion as a whole. So there is a Darcy Ritchie's piece. Uh, that, very well done. Um, Love our use of sound there. Got to hear President Eisenhower and uh, and uh, some 1950s students uh, reciting the the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, so Chris Babbitts, and, and again we're talking with uh, uh, USU postdoctoral fellow Chris Babbitts. He gave this podcast assignment to his students in a in a recent class. Uh, anything you want to say about the piece? Oh, it's just it. really well done, and like you said, uh, the use of clips is just really I think 
uh, strategic and just really just adds so much. And just that opening clip just of the students reciting the pledge uh, really just shows how much even just two words can change uh, the meaning of anything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the misconception there is some people think that uh, One Nation Under God was always there, right? And, uh, yeah. That was added. And that context about the, the, co- the contest with with communism as well. Yeah. It's, it's it just a really well contextualized yeah. histor- historical piece, I think. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, three other pieces so hopefully we can get to here. Uh, two others we'll put on our website from this uh, class. Six students took you up on this uh, assignment, right? Yep. Um, so let's go to a break. And when we come back, we'll uh, hear another of these uh, pieces, a podcast from uh, a religious history class, right? Yep. At Utah State University. Uh, And we'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about uh, misconceptions um, about uh, American religious history. Uh, that was the title of uh, an assignment that Chris Babbitts, a USU postdoctoral teaching fellow, gave to his uh, class uh, on American religious history. And uh, so uh, we heard uh, a piece by uh, Darcy Ritchie uh, previous to the break, One Nation Under God, when the Pledge of Allegiance went to war with, uh, with communism. Um, so next up, I'd like to hear uh, some, just some fascinating history. Um, and this is a uh, piece, I don't have her first name here, Wynn. Do you recall her first name? Haley Wynn. Haley Wynn, Haley Wynn. Uh, religious insanity through the eyes of Elizabeth uh, Packard. She asked the questions, how are religion and mental illness related? And uh, the, the answer is kind of distressing. <laughs> now, this one's actually by Lauren Moon. Oh, this is Lauren Moon. Yeah, yeah. sorry, sorry. So, um, who was a first-year student and who uh, really uh, enjoyed I think this assignment because it was so different. Uh, if I remember, uh, she's a bio or chemistry major, so this is this oh, is very different than yeah. all of the labs that she had that were very set, stressful sounding. So yeah. she had a lot of fun with this. I think. Yeah. Uh, so this was a, a piece of history I had not been familiar with, and uh, so I guess what I won't ruin it for people. Just just have people come to this fresh. You may know this history. I didn't, uh, but it's, it's a fascinating uh, piece of history. It's a Lauren Moon's uh, piece, Religious Insanity Through the Eyes of Elizabeth Packard. Let's hear this. How are our religion and mental illness related? Or are they? Is it possible for some mental disillusions to be expressed through one's religious beliefs? The answer might be found in grandiose delusions that someone is a biblical prophet or in a person's experiences with angels. But do unpopular religious beliefs have to mean that someone is insane? Let's explore a time when these two directions of thought were fused into a serious religious misconception, one that caused a 19th century pathbreaker to spend years of her life in an insane asylum. In the 1860s, there was not only a religious revival in the United States, but also early efforts to develop modern notions of psychopathology. This convergence of religious excitement with the emerging field of psychopathology created a damaging situation for people whose religious beliefs were a little unordinary. Elizabeth Parsons Ware Packard expressed how others would interpret her religious beliefs as psychopathology during the era of the American Civil War. Elizabeth Packard lived a quiet life with her husband and six children in a small town in Illinois in 1860. Her husband, Theophilus Packard, was a Calvinist-minded minister at the Presbyterian Church. Theophilus had recently changed his religious teachings to be more in line with conservative Christian doctrines that supported slavery. 
This was in part due to a large sponsorship by an influential anti-abolitionist politician. Elizabeth, however, was a firm abolitionist and believed that the Bible backed her belief. Because of her religious education at a private boarding school, she was able to support her ideas quite eloquently. She began teaching Sunday school classes and writing essays that directly opposed Theophilus' doctrines. Much to her husband's chagrin, she became popular with parishioners. Theophilus told Elizabeth to stop preaching against him. She refused, saying that she would not, quote, act the hypocrite by professing to believe what I could not believe, unquote. This rift caused Elizabeth to consider leaving her husband's Presbyterian church. During their next argument, Theophilus threatened to place Elizabeth in an insane asylum. Even though this threat was based on protecting his reputation and livelihood, Theophilus' argument that his wife was insane was convincing in the middle of the 19th century. No one would question his claim that Elizabeth's uncommon religious beliefs were mental delusions. Today, it would be unheard of to commit someone to an insane asylum without some evidence that they might do harm to themselves or others. But in Theophilus' time, the misconception played in his favor, allowing him to commit his wife to the Jacksonville Insane Asylum. The morning she was to be taken away, Elizabeth took great care to do her hair and to dress in her finest clothes. Looking her best was important for Elizabeth because she did not want onlookers to have any evidence that she was unwell and worthy of being committed to an insane asylum. Theophilus and other parishioners pointed to her desire to leave the Presbyterian Church as evidence for her madness. Why else would she choose to leave such a reputable church? Once she was admitted to the Jacksonville Asylum, Elizabeth's only line of defense was to prove her sanity to the proprietor of the asylum, Dr. Andrew McFarland. Dr. McFarland befriended Elizabeth, and he visited her often. Elizabeth felt she had finally found someone who would be sympathetic to her case, viewing Dr. McFarland as her best opportunity to be released from the asylum. Dr. McFarland ultimately gave Elizabeth certain privileges that the other patients weren't provided. Elizabeth, for instance, was awarded the keys to the asylum, and she was able to move about the asylum as she pleased. She was also granted permission to lead religious study sessions with the fellow patients in her ward. Obviously, a patient believed to be insane would not be trusted with the keys to her own hospital or be permitted to lead a religious class for her peers. With this defense behind her, Elizabeth approached Dr. McFarland. She outlined the evidence for her sanity, and she called upon Dr. McFarland's conscience to release her immediately. She left her meeting with Dr. McFarland confident that she would return to her family. The next day, however, Elizabeth was sent to a new ward, one with patients who were victims of severe mental illness. Couldn't Dr. McFarland see that she wasn't insane? Even though he could not have seen her as a threat, Dr. McFarland may have still believed she was insane because of her religious belief. Elizabeth spent the next three years in the asylum. She had little contact with the outside world. She was denied pen and paper. Any letters sent to her were immediately confiscated by the asylum's proprietor. Elizabeth was not deterred, though. She found scraps of paper and a broken pen tip and began to write down her experiences in the asylum. She hid these writings on the inner hem of her skirts so that they were never found, even on multiple occasions of searching. Elizabeth spent this time caring for her fellow ward members, bathing them, and caring for the needs that often went overlooked by the asylum staff. Over the course of three years in the asylum, Elizabeth felt it was her calling from God to care for his children. When Elizabeth was finally released from the Jacksonville Asylum, it was only because the patients in her ward had begun to damage asylum property in protest of Elizabeth's committal. 
It was less trouble to get rid of Elizabeth than to keep her in the asylum. Elizabeth returned to Theophilus's home, but was still treated like a prisoner. Theophilus locked her up. Once a friend realized what was going on, Elizabeth was finally given an insanity trial. Elizabeth's trial focused on her religious beliefs, which leading experts from the time cited as evidence for her insanity. One of Elizabeth's most controversial beliefs was that the Holy Ghost was female. Because the Trinity is made up of the Father and the Son, Elizabeth believed that the Holy Ghost was feminine and the heavenly mother of Jesus. This was an uncommon belief in the United States, even if it was a common theology in other parts of the world. Elizabeth felt that God could not be perfect unless his nature included both male and female. She asked, quote, Is not a spiritual woman a personification of the Holy Ghost? Unquote. This showed that she believed the Holy Ghost to be an example of divine womanhood. Unfortunately for Elizabeth, many misinterpreted her writings to mean that she believed that she was the Holy Ghost. Because of this unpopular belief, Elizabeth was thought to be insane. Her religious freedom was encroached upon because it was not within the norm. Religion was listed as a cause of insanity on many asylum records, showing that this is not an isolated event. In the 1860s, spiritualism spread across the country, showing an increased interest in the afterlife, promoted by massive death and destruction during the Civil War. Spiritualists attempted to communicate with the dead through spirit circles and the planchette, an early predecessor of the Ouija board. But was this evidence for insanity? In the 19th century, many believed it was. Here's some additional evidence. In the early 1900s, a large influx of patients in the St. Vincent Assane Asylum directed local psychiatrists to investigate a new religious group on St. Vincent Island called the Shakers. This religion was characterized by visions, dancing, and convulsions. Psychiatrists at the time believed this was caused by hypnotism and hysteria. They even described the Shaker movement as a contagious mental disease. With the budding field of psychopathology colliding with this time of religious revival, the environment was ripe for unjust religious insanity cases. Today we understand that although delusions can be religiously influenced, not all religious beliefs are psychotic. Elizabeth Packard said it well, I have neglected no duties, have injured no one, have always tried to do unto others as I would wish to be done by. And yet, here in America, I am imprisoned because I could not say I believed what I did not believe. So there is a podcast for Chris Babbitt's class, uh, Lauren Moon there, Religious Insanity Through the Eyes of Elizabeth uh, Packard. Fascinating bit of history. I had not been familiar with this. Yeah, she really dove into kind of the connections between religion and psychology, which have a, lo a long history. But oftentimes people think about medicine and religion in different terms today because we've kind of separated those. Yeah. And here's an intersection which produced some pretty shocking <laughs> results uh, uh, in, in this case. Um, well, we've heard uh, two of these podcasts, hope to get to four during this uh, session. You had six students to do that. We'll have the other two up on our uh, website. Uh, we're talking with Chris Babbitts, who is USU postdoctoral teaching fellow, and for his uh, class, his recent American religious history class, he gave out an assignment to do a podcast on myths and misconceptions uh, on American religious history. So uh, several students responded. Uh, well, next up, we, uh, we bring in uh, Chloe Miller. We've uh, apologized, Chloe Miller. We've, uh, we've had all sorts of technical difficulties, <laughs> and uh, now hopefully we have you on, on the line here. 
Yes, I think it should all be working. Thank oh, you. Okay, great. Very good. Uh, good old phone line. We tried Zoom. Uh, that that didn't work today. Uh, so I'm glad the phone line is working, especially since you're, I think, in Germany. Yes, I'm currently just doing a, a summer traveling in Europe, and I'm in Germany at the moment. So I'm glad that this timing worked out. Yeah, well, great. Great. What? Uh, how's Germany right now? Oh, it's great. Yeah, I'm having fun. I'm with one of my friends. So oh, it's been very, a lot of fun. Oh, very good. Very good. Um, well, let's um, let's hear your piece, White Devil, Black Jesus, Religious Influences in the Black Power Movement. How did you encounter this topic? Um, well, so last, or fall semester, before um, this past spring, I actually took a class from a different professor at USU about um, the Civil Rights Movement. And we had a unit where we spent a week or two talking about the Black Power Movement, and that was just something that really fascinated me. Um, and so when this opportunity came along in Dr. Babbitt's class, um, I figured that I would really like to learn more about that and to do more research um, about something that I had already found interesting. And so I just kind of started doing my own research because of that. Tell me a little bit about the research. What Anything stand out to you, surprise you? Yeah, um, I mean, I read a lot of different academic articles about it, and it, what really interested me was um, I learned about a religious movement that I had never really learned about before, which is Black liberation theology, um, which is kind of stemming off from Christianity, but is a lot more radical and also has some factors um, taken from Islam as well, from certain Islamic sects. Uh, and I had never really encountered this before, and I thought it was fascinating to learn more about um, something that's not really talked about very often. Yeah, uh, and so any um, anything you learned from the process of the, the whole process, I guess, research, writing, and in this case, you, the extra step of recording this. Yeah, um, yeah. Like Dr. Bobbitt said earlier, it's really easy for college students to write academic papers, to write argumentatively, to write um, theses and things like that. But it can be a lot more difficult when you're writing something for um, just like your regular layman listener. Um, you have to write a lot more conversationally, and that can be a challenge when you're so used to writing academic papers for the last four years. And so that was actually a challenge that I had to kind of work through. Um, but I mean, it was really interesting um, to be able to do that and to learn about what my classmates were writing about. Um, I found sources really um, interesting, and I found them pretty easily, and I was able to kind of find the sound clips as well and um, put them all together with the things that I was already learning about. So that was really fun. Oh, very good, very good. Uh, I should I should say this this um, version of this, uh, the thing uh, doesn't have the sound clips in it, but... Uh, um, so we did a little bit of editing, um, but anything you'd, like to, anything you'd like to say as we, uh, as we hear the, this piece next? Um, just, I hope you find it interesting. I think I did for sure. Okay. This is Chloe Miller's piece, White Devil, Black Jesus, Religious Influences in the Black Power Movement. White Devil, Black Jesus, Religious Influences in the Black Power Movement. Fists raised in protest, Afros and Black Berets, civil unrest in the streets. Oakland, California. These are some common things that people often associate with the black power movement. The intention of black power is to express a racial consciousness, emphasize racial pride and economic empowerment, and create institutions meant for black people. But religion in any form is not perceived as a facet of black power for most people today. What many people don't fully understand is that religion played a major role in the movement during the late 1960s and 1970s. Religion, and Christianity in particular, deeply influenced the civil rights movement that black power grew out of. 
most people are familiar with Martin Luther King Jr.'s nonviolent approach that came from his Christian beliefs. And other civil rights activists and leaders were actively trained in nonviolent responses to white violence. Black churches were at the forefront of the black freedom struggle. Churches frequently served as meeting places and sources of financial support. On an individual level, the clergy and church membership mobilized resources that made action possible and ensured the success of the civil rights movement. The male and female leaders of the movement were associated with various churches and held their own religious convictions. It's hard to overstate the significance of the black Christian church to the legislative success of the black freedom movement. Not all African Americans, however, believed that this form of Christianity was the most effective route towards true black equality. Islam was another religious facet of black power that was active in the 1960s and 1970s. The Nation of Islam was the sect that was most closely associated with both civil rights and black power. This is the group that Malcolm X was part of for some of his life. One historian quotes a black power leader as saying that through Islam's theology, Malcolm X gave the black freedom struggle its black identity as the center of the movement. One aspect of the Nation of Islam's theology that especially influenced the rise of black power was the rhetoric of the white man as the devil. Members of the Nation of Islam believed that God's exaltation of black Americans was inevitable and that God would destroy the power of the white devil. God's divine judgment had already been seen in the collapse of historical civilizations, and surely it would soon penetrate America as a result of the white man's enslavement and oppression of the black man. Malcolm X portrayed the Nation of Islam as militantly opposed to tyranny and oppression, which deeply influenced the black power movement. Malcolm also promoted the need for black people to progress through mental reform, which would help them to reach their full potential. Although Malcolm X later left the Nation of Islam, both parties were important to the development of black power. Consequently, black power took many of its tenets from Islam. Because the Christian aspects of the civil rights movement largely espoused love and nonviolence, many black people felt that it was not effective enough to attain the central goal of black power. The essential dignity of African Americans is important enough that white people must understand it by any means necessary, even violence. Proponents of black power believed that the popular and more mainstream Christianity of Martin Luther King Jr. was not the way forward. Something more radical was needed. Black theology was needed. Militant adherents of black power viewed Christianity as a white man's religion. They contended that it was a colonialist instrument of conquest, intended to erase African culture and accomplishment. Historically, Christianity has been used as a tool with which to keep black people enslaved and subjugated, promising a reward in the life to come if they accepted their inferior state in this life. As a response to this common belief, some black Christian thinkers developed their own black liberation theology, which, according to James Cone, aims to apply the freeing power of the gospel to black people living under white oppression. This liberation theology is meant for black people, and it fully rejects white supremacy in every form and advocates for complete racial liberation. Black liberation theology is grounded in Christian doctrine from the Bible, but it too has been influenced by the Islamic thoughts of self-determination and complete liberation that brought about black power. One might say that black liberation theology is almost a fusion of the two religious traditions. While not entirely accurate, it has at least taken significant pieces of the more militant Nation of Islam's beliefs and reconciled them with a messianic, revolutionary, oppression-centered Christian theology. Black liberation theology includes tenets like self-determination, revolution, personal improvement, active justice in this life, black nationalism, and divine judgment on the white oppressors.
the idea of black liberation theology appeared in earnest around the late 1960s. James Cone, the black theologian and professor referenced earlier, contributed to the growth of this intellectual and religious movement. It really was, and still is, an intellectual movement as well as a militant set of religious beliefs. In his pioneering book, Black Theology and Black Power, Cohn persuasively argued for a drastic change in how Christians must see Christianity as being fundamentally on the side of the oppressed, through action rather than in word alone. He identified liberation as the heart of the Christian gospel and analyzed the roles of the white church and the black church regarding their historical maltreatment of African Americans. Black liberation theology is not just about Christianity, though. It is also about what it looks like to live in dignity as a black human being. But often, this way can look aggressive and hateful to those who have contributed to the historic oppression of African Americans by removing their agency and power. The black Christian nationalist movement was part and parcel of the rise of black liberation theology. The common thread between the two is power. Reverend Albert Clegg was involved with both black Christian nationalism and black liberation theology. Clegg believed that without a drastic shift in the racial power structure, nothing can ever or will ever improve for black people in America. This is the idea at the heart of black power. Since black people have no power, they must attain it by any means necessary. Black liberation theology, much like the core of black power, believed in this by any means necessary approach to change. The belief that Jesus fully identifies with the oppressed rather than with the powerful means that Jesus is actively working against the white power structure and that black people have the right to dismantle it since it accords with the divine will. For a group of people with a religious or Christian perspective of the world, that aspect of life must also enter the black power movement. James Cone wrote that, quote, black power and black religion are inseparable. It is impossible for black religion to be truly related to the condition of black people without taking into consideration man's religious nature, end quote. This happened through the development of black liberation theology. Religion was necessary for the black freedom struggle because of the deep-seated religious convictions of many African Americans. When we take a reductive, secular view of the black power movement, the religious elements of the movement are distorted and erased. The significance of black liberation theology is diluted and makes it more difficult to understand the threads that tie together race, religion, violence, and freedom, both then and now. So there is uh, the the essay, the, the podcast, White Devil, Black Jesus, Religious Influences in the Black Power Movement. Uh, Chloe Miller, what, what did you think listening to that, Chloe? Um, I mean, I had listened to it before. I hadn't really listened to it since I recorded it, but um, yeah, I think it the editing was done well enough to take out the, uh, the sound bits, so that was pretty good, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Chris Babbitts, um, I wonder what you, what do you tell your students about the role of history, about, about uh, what we learn, what we gain by, by diving into history? Yeah, obviously there's the getting a better sense of ourselves, but I think that history especially in the past 20 years, has been become so highly politicized to that kind of a deep dive into the primary sources really reveals a much more complex uh, version of events versus kind of what we might hear on a political stump. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Chloe Miller, there uh, there is a, a lot of complexity in this piece that you, uh, and a, a lot, I'm sure, that you could have put in, but you only had, uh, you know, like eight minutes or something. Yes. Um, yeah, there was definitely a lot that I could have added and a lot that I had to cut out, um, which was unfortunate. But 
um, yeah, I think that this really did a good job of looking at the complexity of um, issues like race and religion and power and who has it and what that struggle can look like and how um, different sides um, have this tension between them often, um, just tying in those threads together and realizing just how complex certain issues can be and, like Dr. Babbitt said, how political they can become. Uh, I'm sure it's inescapable. You you notice parallels in in our time, right? To the, uh, these issues, these, these I guess uh, these issues continue. Yes, absolutely. I think it was very timely in that respect. Um, America has been and is still dealing with um, the the question of race and what it looks like to be black in America and how that should be um, should be dealt with and wrestled with and. Um, you know, who has power. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll hear a, a final piece, at least of those we're going to hear today. Uh, this will deal with Native American religious freedom. Very, very interesting. Uh, we have with us Chris Babbitts, who is USU postdoctoral teaching fellow, and uh, one of his uh, former students, Chloe Miller. Um, so, uh, Chloe Miller, you are you a history major? What do you, what's your... Yeah, um, I am a history major. Religious studies is one of my minors, and so this yeah. class was the perfect combination of those two. Yeah, yeah, very good. What uh, what, what are you going to do with that? What uh, That's always the question, right? The, the dreaded question, what's, <laughs> what's the plan? That is always the question. Um, I have received a job offer. I'm going to be a 12th grade civics teacher in Denver, Colorado next year. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Well, and all this history will come in, come in handy, I'm sure, as you teach civics there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's nice to have something right in my field after graduation. Yeah, that's wonderful. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll, uh, we'll hear another of these pieces from Chris Babbitt's uh, American Religious History class. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, we have with us Chris Babbitt, who's a postdoctoral teaching fellow uh, at USU. Uh, and for his American Religious History class, he assigned a podcast uh, uh, do, do something, he said, in the area of uh, myths and misconceptions of American uh, religious history. So we just heard uh, Chloe Miller, she's with us as well, we heard her piece on the Black Power Movement. Um, let's uh, jump in here to a one last piece, at least for uh, t- today, uh, called Drugs, Unemployment, and Government Overreach, Fighting for Native American Religious Freedom. This is Haley Wynn's piece. Uh, so, Chris Babbitts, do you want to say anything about this? Well, this is just a really interesting piece that shows um, the limits of, I think, uh, the First Amendment protection for uh, f- uh, religious expression. Yeah. So here's Haley Wynn's uh, piece. <laughs> That was Premia and Mike, two-time Grammy Award winners and members of the Native American Church. When Verdell, one of the members of Premia and Mike, was a child, he was diagnosed with spinal and yellow meningitis. His family used peyote, a Native American Church sacramental herb, song, and prayer to try and heal the boy. Miraculously, the sacred herbal sacrament of peyote healed Verdell. Since then, Verdell has produced Native American music as, quote, 
a living testimony to the healing power of God and peyote, unquote. Over the last 40 years, the legality of peyote as a religious sacrament has been up for constitutional and legal debate. Even though it's an essential part of the Native American church, the United States Supreme Court greatly limited the freedom of indigenous Americans to practice the peyote religion. Many Americans assume that their religious freedom is guaranteed by the First Amendment. Americans' religious rights, however, are contested in the court system nearly every day. Peyoteism is one of the oldest and continuously practiced religions in North America. Indigenous peoples in the Rio Grande, or present-day Texas and Mexico, have used peyote for centuries. Peyote has been used during prayer, as a part of funerals, and in other religious celebrations. In conjunction with song and drums and rattles, peyote has become known for its medicinal purposes. In modern times, the tradition of peyote sacraments spread while the United States government isolated Native Americans on reservations. After the Civil War, the United States government tried to assimilate American Indians into white society. Some indigenous peoples resisted these government efforts at assimilation. Peyoteism specifically helped Plains Indians connect to their native roots and keep their religious traditions alive. Peyoteism spread quickly in the face of governmental oppression against indigenous peoples. In 1891, right after the massacre at Wounded Knee, there was the first official and modern documentation of peyote usage for religious use. Peyote use continued to spread throughout Native American reservations and in the Native American church, which was founded in 1918. In 1978, Congress passed the American Indian Religious Act, a law that guaranteed the legality of peyote use in religious ceremonies. In other words, peyoteism is legal in the United States for members of the American church to use within their ceremonies. In 1990, the Supreme Court considered the rights of members of the Native American Church in Employment Division, Department of Human Resources of Oregon, v. Smith. Two men, Alfred Smith and Galen Black, took peyote for religious purposes. They both worked at a drug rehabilitation clinic and were fired for peyote use outside of work hours and denied unemployment compensation because peyote use was considered to be work-related misconduct. Alfred Smith, one of the men who was fired for his religious use of peyote, took the Department of Human Resources of Oregon to court. He claimed that his religious liberty had been violated by the state. Eventually, the case reached the United States Supreme Court. The justices ruled that the use of peyote during a religious ceremony was classified as a religious act. The majority opinion, however, determined that Smith's ability to practice his religion privately was not protected. Because Oregon's drug policy did not specifically target the Native American church, the Supreme Court ruled that Oregon was within its right to withhold benefits from citizens who were fired for disobeying workplace rules. The rights of the employer to have a drug-free employee, in other words, trumped the religious liberty of employees. The Supreme Court ruling fundamentally altered the state of religious freedom in the United States. If the state had an interest in someone's personal life, that interest could trample religious freedom. Immediately, religious figures from across the political spectrum recognized the threat that this Supreme Court ruling posed. Americans worried about how the ruling in Employment Division v. Smith would impact their own religious freedom. This included fears of decreased religious freedom in education, in private religious beliefs, and in workplace. Proponents of Hasidic Jewish education, for instance, saw a threat to their schools. The state had long been recognized as having an interest in the quality of education that children receive. After ruling in Employment Division v. Smith, Hasidic Jews worried that state authorities might demand a change of curriculum, even if it went against the Jews' faith. 
The U.S. Congress saw the threat that Employment Division v. Smith posed to religious liberty to members of all religions. In 1993, Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or the RFRA. Due to the support of many religious leaders who supported the Native American Church, in 1994, an amendment in the American Indian Religious Act clearly dictated peyote was legal in the United States because of the rule it played in religion. So peyote as a religious sacrament is now plainly legal because of that act. Dr. Babbitt, a history professor at Utah State University, explained the act by saying, quote, the American Indian Religious Freedom Act protects the right of Native Americans to exercise their traditional religions by ensuring access to sites, use, and possession of sacred objects, and the freedom to worship through ceremonial and traditional rites, end quote. Today, many American Indians continue to use peyote as part of their religion. While using peyote to connect with her spirituality after the death of her father, Amber Lebhe, an adherent to the Native American Church in Arizona, shared her experience with PBS. She shared this following quote. We eat peyote to pray for ourselves, our family, and the land, ultimately to heal physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Peyote is a living entity that allows us to gather together and gain strength throughout the night that we chose to have a ceremony. Peyote is truly an integral part of La Paz religion. It is important to ensure that all Americans keep their religious liberty because when one religion loses their liberty, all of them do. Religious freedoms are interconnected in important ways. To close, Stephen Benali, a member of the Sioux tribe and a leader in the Native American church, shared why it is important to discuss religion and our related rights. Benali stated the following. All indigenous people that use these medis different medicine plants, they have a responsibility to take care of it and to save it and to give and to preserve for the next generation coming. And so this peyote way of life is a wonderful way of life that we have where we use this peyote to help ourselves. And we do all that we can to help and to make sure that it would be there for our children. During this pandemic, we had to rely on what we have and this medicine we had to rely on prayer and spirituality to make it through. And so we have to get back in tune, in balance, and in harmony with nature if we, are, if we want our children to live and to enjoy this life on this earth. For a long time, we have to do what we have to do today. And one of those very important virtues in all of this is that we have to learn to listen to one another. If somebody has an issue, a problem with what we say or what is going on or what we're doing, we have to pay attention and listen and to understand why it is that that particular voice is there. I think Benali said it perfectly. We need to listen to one another, learn about another's, one another's beliefs and religions, and understand each other so we can truly help each other maintain our rights. There's Haley Wynn's piece, uh, Drugs, Unemployment, and Government Overreach, Fighting for Native American Religious Freedom. Uh, Chris Babbitts, you were quoted in her piece. You, you've done some research in this area, I guess? Or? 
Well, I'm I'm a historian of the modern U.S. Uh-huh. So yeah. Um, but I I kind of pushed myself this semester to teach a little bit more about indigenous history, which is a class I TA'd for when I was getting my PhD, but it's not really a specialty area of mine. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, that was an interesting piece. I uh, wasn't aware of a lot of that history. So that's the value, I guess, of, of uh, assigning these pieces and value for us in, in broadcasting these. Uh, Chloe Miller, you still with us? Yes, I am. Uh, what did you think of that piece? Did, were you able to, were you privy to these, uh, your, the other students' pieces, or are you just kind of working on your own? Yeah, so I had read and I had listened to Haley's piece before. Um, we did peer reviews in the class, ah. um, and I had known from class discussion that she was planning to work on a piece on peyote, and so I thought it was really interesting, and I loved how it turned out. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Uh, so final question to you, Chloe. Uh, you're, uh, what you, uh, civics, is that what you're teaching? Yeah, so that's interesting. Much needed, I think we would say. Uh, is that why you is that why you went to this? Um, not specifically. This was not uh, teaching civics was never the specific end goal, but um, I was excited to teach. I applied for um, social studies teaching positions with this school, and civics was what they had a need for. And I'm really excited to be able to fulfill that role because um, I agree, civics is really important to learn about. It's important to know how your government works and. Um, how that fits into your life as an American. Uh, how are you preparing uh, to, to teach civics? Um, yeah, no, there will be um, there will be training sessions before the school year starts in August, um, and there will be a lot of support from the faculty and the staff at the school um, that I'm really excited to get to be a part of. And yeah, I'm just still doing some reading on those kinds of topics that interest me, even over the summer. So, yeah, wonderful. Uh, so, Chris Babbitt's uh, final word, uh, what would you think of this assignment? Are you going to do this again to other classes? Yeah, I'm ge- definitely going to try it again. I'm teaching a history of modern psychology course in the fall, which is also a capstone course in the psychology department. And they want more hands-on learning. And I think that this uh, group of students in American religious history really proved that. I think this is a good assignment to keep on continuing and refining. Well, uh, we are out of time. I uh, hope you enjoyed those. We'll have those the other two that were uh, produced uh, we didn't have time for up on our website as well. Uh, so we've been talking with the USU postdoctoral teaching fellow, Chris Babbitts. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we've been talking with uh, one of his former students, uh, Chloe Miller. Thanks. Thank you for having me. And uh, good luck with the rest of your time in Germany. Sounds fun. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah.